1: Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm absolutely thrilled because I have back with me today two former superstar guests, Dr. Michael Asando and Dr. Joe Cody. They, you may remember, used to work together at The Ohio State University where Dr. Asando is still a professor of anesthesiology and the assistant dean for graduate medical education. Uh, But Dr. Cody, as these things happen, graduated from fellowship, um, I'm sure with flying colors and uh, is now down in Florida in the warm weather where he's a cardiac anesthesiologist in the community setting at quite a busy center uh, doing hearts and a lot of other things. And I'm going to ask him to tell us a little bit about that in a second. I do just want to remind everyone that ACRAC now offers CME credit. So if you want or need CME, you can go to the website, click on the links for CME and get it that way. All right, let's jump in. We're going to talk about the Mitra CLIP procedure, how that works, why it's being done, uh, this is, if you don't know, and we'll learn a lot more about it, but is a new way of managing mitral valve disease, and I'm really excited to learn more about it and share that with all of you. So, uh, Joe and Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us, Chad.
2: Thanks for having us again. It's always an honor and a privilege to be an eye
1: thanks so much, all right, so I want to start though Joe, by asking you tell us a little bit about that transition because I'm sure there are folks out there listening who are fellows now or residents going to be fellows thinking about that transition uh, from fellowship to private practice, and just talk a little bit about you know what that was like for you, how you picked where you are and what you're doing what your what your practice looks like now
3: yeah, sure, so I was uh trained by uh by uh, Mike at um, ohio state, so my my uh transition was pretty smooth because of Basically, because of the good training that I I got there, and as a, a resident um, through through uh, Allegheny and and uh, in, in Pittsburgh, and I, I I wanted a job where I could do a fair bit of cardiac, but I felt like I spent so much time in in training doing OB and regional and um and and uh, peds and all those stuff. So so I wanted a job where I could use my fellowship, and so they they brought me in as kind of a uh, cardiac guy. So that's kind of where they stick me most days. So I, I usually do, um, one to three pump cases, um, for like either, um, either a valve or cabbage surgery or, or similar per week. And then, um, other days I'm placed in, um, a, I'm, uh, I'm taking care of, um, patients in the uh, structural heart setting. So that would be either, um, at Watchman's, uh, clips. um, that kind of group of, uh, of uh, procedures. And then um, if they don't have that going on, I'm doing OB or PEDS or ortho. or So I get to do a little bit of everything, but, uh, but uh, mostly cardiac. And it's really great because um, it was kind of the, the perfect job for me. Um, we have residents that uh, rotate through. It's not really a um, residency, but I still kind of get a, um, to, to teach too. So for me, it's kind of been the perfect job. Um, I, I don't think I'll ever be a full professor and Dean of GME like Mike, but, um, I get to do what, um, is good for me and it, it's a good fit for me. So, yeah,
1: that's great. Well, I'm thrilled. And, and, uh, I think, um, you know, lo- really good for people to realize that there are so many different paths, uh, to interesting careers and to happiness. Right. So really, uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, let's jump in, um, uh, Mike, maybe we'll start with you. If you could talk a little bit about maybe just review with us mitral regurgitation you know, what is it? What does it mean? What kind of hemodynamic complications are associated with it? And that, of course, is going to take us into the mitroclip, which is a a treatment for mitral regurgitation. But let's start with just a review of mitral regurgitation. What do you think it's important for people to know to understand our discussion to come?
2: Uh, Excellent. I think that's a great way to start. So I'll start off by saying that to really under, grasp a great understanding of microagricitation, it's important to understand what the valve is made of. So the valve is different from the aortic valve. The aortic valve is essentially the leaflets, the annulus, and that's about it. The microvalve, on the other hand, is a complex. So it's made up of the leaflets, uh, the commissures, then you have chordae tendineae that attach the leaflets to the papillary muscle. So then after the papillary muscle, you have the underlying left ventricle. And so any dysfunction of any of these components, even including the left atrial wall, so if you have left atrial enlargement, it would lead to a dilation of the annulus that will lead to mitral If you have somebody who has an, you know um, an acute myocardial infarction and they develop a papillary muscle rupture, that will lead to you know, mitral regurgitation. Uh, so if you have a patient who develops global left ventricular dysfunction, or even uh, if you have uh, the synchrony of the left ventricle from right ventricular pacing, that would also lead to mitral regurgitation. So mitral essentially is a heterogeneous, you know, disease, Uh, And the ideologies can be due to any dysfunction of any of these, you know, components. Um, And essentially, if you go by the strict, you know, classification uh, for, for, you know, classifying the classification of mitral regurgitation, there are two types. You have the primary mitral regurgitation, which is a disease of the leaflets themselves, uh, and uh, other sources may call it organic, so it's a mitral leaflet uh, disease. Whereas the secondary mitral regurgitation is the case where the leaflets are actually functionally normal, but disease of other components, such as uh, most commonly, if you have a, a left ventricular dilatation from any cardiomyopathy, or you have, you know, um, annular dilation from any functional uh, any dysfunction of the left ventricle, that will lead to you know secondary MR. So. Uh, it's really critical to basically understand that regurgitation is, is a heterogeneous disease. It can be a primary, it can be secondary, or you can have components of both primary or secondary uh, in any patient where, let's say, a patient may have a prolapse of the anterior mitral leaflet, which is a primary etiology, but they also have a baseline underlying cardiomyopathy, so the left ventricle is dilated, so then you have tethering where the leaflets are kind of pulled down into the left ventricle, uh, like apically. So those are the two main, you know, uh, components uh, or types of mitral irritation. Um, Hemodynamically, uh, normally and systole, when the left ventricle contracts, the mitral valve leaflets meet at the the coaptation zone, uh, which is along the line of the commissure and then close. And by so doing, the left ventricle is pressurized and the blood goes out through the aortic valves and into the systemic circulation. But when you have mitral valve um, dysfunction in this, in the which is causing regurgitation, when the ventricle um, undergoes systole, the blood flow regurgitates into the left atrium. So you develop left atrial hypertension. The left atrial wall tension increases, and this vicious cycle leads to a further increase in the preload of the left ventricle. So whenever there's another systolic event, you have an increase in left atrial pressures, which leads to back uh, filling of the pulmonary veins. So the patients develops heart failure symptoms where, especially once they start exercising and the left atrial pressure increases and the pulmonary venous capacitance increases from all that blood going backwards. They just have poor uh, functional status. So hemodynamically, uh, those are the main considerations. And then other issues that can happen from that is the right ventricle from the chronic volume overloading of the left atrium and the pulmonary circulation may also become dysfunctional. And then with the increased wall tension in the left atrium, patients also become prone to atrial arrhythmias. So over time, uh, it's, really inher- it's really essential that if a patient has chronic mitral regurgitation, to follow them with serial echocardiograms and also listen to them. And get a you know a sense of what their functional status is because once the MR goes to um, from moderate to severe to severe, like when you get into that range, uh, which is also called graded on three plus MR, if the patient has symptoms or the left ventricle is dilated, that is a time to really get the patient for some therapy, whether it's surgical repair of the mitral valve or replacement, or as we would discuss, you know, on this forum, uh, mitral clip. Implantation to try and reverse the vicious cycle of volume overload, which leads to further LV volume overload, arrhythmias, poor functional capacity, uh, extra, extra.
1: Great, thanks, Mike. Now, just out of curiosity, with the with secondary MR do you get recovery sometimes if you fix the the underlying problem? So let's say it's from, you know, um, left ventricular dilation, but you, you know, you kind of fix the pressure issue or you can get a little bit of repair there or, you know, uh, these might not be great examples, but you know what I mean? If you can fix what's causing the secondary MR, will that sometimes revert back to better or, or once you get to a certain point, are you kind of set with having to repair the valve?
2: Yes, that's an excellent question. So once again, when you talk secondary, it's not a valvular leaflet disease. It's the you so so when you do an assessment, you always want to find out what is the cause of it. So if it's a patient that has like let's say a right coronary issue where the inferior wall is dyskinetic, and they have mitral regurgitation as a result of that, when you do either a coronary stent or you do a coronary bypass grafting and you improve. Coronary blood flow. As long as you still have great myocardial viability in that region, if your myocardium starts uh, contracting in synchrony, majority of the time the MR would go away. Um, the, the The issue becomes patients where you don't detect the MR early, and then they develop such you know apical and lateral displacement of the left ventricle that even when you do a bypass, you may not be able to recover that LV function. But one other um, um, thing to consider is, it used to be that surgically we we used to think that if you just reduce the annulus of the mitral valve and bring the leaflets together, that the micro the secondary mitral regurgitation would go away. And there's multiple um, uh, surgical you know publications that have indicated that that is not the case because you bring the leaflets together by reducing the annulus, but if the left ventricle the left ventricular disease keeps progressing. It would keep pulling those leaflets apically, so within like a year or two, secondary MR that is fixed by anal- just you know an aneurysmoplasty recurs a lot. So that's why there is now an indication of doing um, the mitral clip for secondary MR because it, it brings the leaflets together and takes away the ventricular aspect of pulling the leaflets
1: you know apart. Right. Okay. Now. Are you going to assess patients? You mentioned following them with echo as if they have MR to kind of follow it over time and assess whether it's getting worse, plus their symptoms, of course. How, what are you seeing on echo? That's going to make you think it's now time for repair. And then is there a way based on what you see that you can decide, should this patient get an open repair versus the mitra clip, which is going to be an endovascular repair?
2: Fantastic. So the first thing is, um, the, even, you know, so, so now, uh, surgery is still the primary therapy for mitral regurgitation, uh, and for my, organic or primary mitral regurgitation. Uh, secondary MR is still debatable: You just leave it as a bypass or whether you should uh, replace the valve. Because we've, it's been demonstrated that repair with an with a you know restrictive annuloplasty does not take away secondary mitral regurgitation. So when a patient develops MR, the first thing you do echocardiographically is you want to determine the etiology, right? And that involves doing an anatomical assessment uh, and use either the carpentier classification or other approaches. So you want to see, is this is, is this a primary MR or is it a secondary MR? So that's the first, you know, structured approach to it. And once you determine the mechanism of the MR, then you go a step further to determine the severity and then the patient's symptoms. So uh, anatomically for primary MR, you're looking for a flail or a prolapse. And then after after that, you, you look at the left ventricle, look at the left ventricular size, look at the size of the left atrium. Because if you have chronic MR, both chambers will be enlarged. So that also gives you an inclination of the chronicity and the severity, you know, of the left ventricle. And then for, especially for secondary MR, there are other quantifications um, such as looking at the leaflets are pulled apically. So it's called, you know, tentin. So you can look at like the tentin height, the tentin areas. And that tells you that this patient has other a chronic secondary MR from you know, chronic dilation of the left ventricle. So after you determine the, the mechanism, then you need to determine the severity. So when you talk about severity of MR, there are a lot of, you know, and you want to do it, um, which other trials like the Co-op trial, and the Everest trial have, you know, suggested. You want to use physicians that have been trained and have experience in quantifying mitral So uh, most quantitative things that we use are, uh, such as the left atrium, the area of the mitral regurgitation in relation to the area of the left atrium. Another, you know, uh, parameter is what we call the vena contractor. We have a vena contractor width, which is the narrowest point of the mitral regurgitation. And we also have a vena contractor area, which is the narrowest area of the mitral regurgitation. And then you can progress to uh, the regurgitant volume. How much of the stroke volume going to the mitral valve regurgitates back into the left atrium. If it's 60%, that volume is too high, sorry, 60 milliliters, that volume is too high and it's such a high regurgitant volume. And you also want to look at the regurgitant fraction. What fraction of the stroke volume that goes through the microvalve regurgitates back? If it's 50%, that's a high regurgitant fraction that's you know um, reflective of severe microregurgitation. And then one other thing you can do is you can measure the regurgitant orifice area, which is like the dimension of the mitral regurgitation, the the orifice. And if that regurgitant orifice area is close to 0.4 centimeters squared, that's also a reflection of severe MR. And then um, other, like they are quantitative, but a little more on the qualitative side. Uh, We look at the pulmonary veins because when blood goes backwards, it causes flow reversal. So if the flow in the pulmonary vein reverses backwards, like it like reverses in systole, you have severe mitral regurgitation. And also if, um, if you do a continuous wave assessment where you basically analyze through the mitral in diastole and you compare the, the density of that envelope to the envelope when there is mitral regurgitation. If there's a lot of red blood cells regurgitating backwards into the left atrium, that's also, you know, um, a reflection of severe mitral regurgitation. So when it comes to identifying MR, you look at the mechanism, then you go to the, the quantification. And if the patient is symptomatic and has greater than three plus, which is moderate to severe mitral regurgitation, you don't want to wait. Uh, further, because in the left ventricle may become so dysfunctional that when you fix the mitral regurgitation, it's not going to recover. So at that point, you you basically have to uh, determine, is this patient sick enough based on their society of thoracic surgical score or Euroscore score two? Uh, how, how sick are they to tolerate cardiopulmonary bypass for big mitral valve surgery? Or are they too sick that a quicker approach with a mitral clip May basically reduce their regurgitation, improve their fun- functional capacity, reduce their hospitalizations for heart failure, and basically improve their quality of life. So that's where we are. Uh, and this decision is made by a multidisciplinary heart team, including anesthesiologists, cardiac surgeons, heart failure physicians, um, and uh, and 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 others. and And also, we also have to understand that if there is dyskinesis in uh, a lot of patients, when you from somebody that's being paced, if you do a coronary sinus lead and do biventricular pacing, the MR may also go away. So mechanism is important, then scaling of the severity, and then you decide where the patient fits for therapies.
1: Great. All right. So that was a great overview of what we're looking at in the echo. And then what we really want to know in terms of patient selection, as you said, is is this somebody who needs a repair, but can't, isn't going to tolerate a big open, you know, bypass surgery. And in that case, they might be a good candidate for this endovascular surgery. So kind of similar to a Taver in the sense of, can you tolerate a big open heart surgery or or is it better to do something endovascularly? All right, Joe, why don't we turn to you and talk a little bit about why, I mean, we just said some people can't tolerate a big open surgery, so that's part of it, but what is the, or maybe that's it, but are there other reasons why we think that this was important? Why was MitroClip invented? What was the purpose? And, um, you know, how exactly are we thinking about it in terms of who would qualify and are there contraindications where patients just wouldn't, wouldn't be a good, uh, for this procedure?
3: Yeah. So, um, I, the, the concept of, um, of the um of the uh, mitroclip and and uh, other thing that people will um, talk about is edge to edge repair or um the um the uh, uh, the uh, abbreviation for it is um uh T E E R edge to edge repair and it, it it was actually born from a surgical uh, technique that started in the early '90s. There's an um, he's an um, Italian uh, cardiac surgeon. He's still still practicing, Dr. Alfieri, who uh, came up with this idea where he put a stitch in between the um, the um, anterior and posterior leaflet of the uh, mitral valve. So, uh, so uh, uh, going back to the the um, uh, anatomy, the the um, the uh, mitral valve has two two uh, leaflets and he basically stitched them together, um, so instead of the, the, it having a single uh, orifice, it had two. So it, it's it's not like he sewed the valve shut. He just put a single stitch in the in the in the middle, and the idea was it would uh, promote more more forward flow and less regurgitant flow, which actually panned out to be true. And so then the um, uh, early two uh, thousands uh, came. And the uh, transcatheter uh, technology started to started to take off, and uh, they said, "Well, maybe we'll copy what he did in surgery through a transcatheter um, uh, approach." So that's sort of how that was born. Um, so that's sort of the first part of your question, I think. Um, and, and, and then, you know, who, who's a candidate? Who's who's not? So, I, I, I think I think if. Uh, going back, and I'm going to say what that was, uh, some of uh, the same things that that uh, Mike just said, but I think it's important because it, it it covers uh, kind of the big uh, picture thing. So, if it's a patient where the disease is just the mitral valve, and it's not the LV, it's not the uh, LA, you know, say it's a young healthy person with a P2 prolapse or 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 a, or, or something where um, their heart's fine, it's just the valve. Um, uh, so, 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 um, so, uh, currently, um, and it's better for those patients, uh, to go to the, uh, OR and, uh, and, uh, get that fixed. If it's someone who's uh, old and frail, who, who, uh, may not to tolerate surgery, uh, um, or, or, um, or, or it could be. Uh, somebody where the uh, mechanism is uh, different. So, in like in like ischemic uh, MR, those patients are 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 better to go for the um, for the uh, mitral clip.
1: Okay. And are there comorbidities or uh, situations in which you can't do it? I mean, for example, if a patient has concomitant mitral stenosis and mitral regurgitation, maybe you tell me, but maybe they're not the best yeah. candidate.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so a um, complication of the, of of, of the procedure um, is actually a uh, mitral uh, stenosis. So uh, the guideline says that if the mitral valve um, uh, area starting out is, is, is a four centimeters squared or smaller, they're probably not a great uh, um, uh, candidate. Uh, other things um, because it is an um, uh, endovascular uh, 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 procedure um, if they have, problems in their femoral veins, if they have a, um, a thrombus in the femoral vein or the uh, IVC, if there's a thrombus in the um, atria, um, if there's a problem with the septum, if the septum, if they have an uh, ASC that's been fixed, that's something to think about that could get things kind of, things could be uh, tricky. Um, so um, if, if the patient has uh, perforation from uh, endocarditis, so those are some patients who really you probably shouldn't do it in.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Now, when patients get this done, I assume the clip is made of some sort of material that is not um, tissue, and so do they need to be anticoagulated?
3: They are. Uh, so um, for it's uh, if you look at the uh, at the um, a trial in the in the um, in the um, Everest trial. Um, for a certain uh, period of time uh, post clipping, uh, patients were uh, were uh, put on dual uh, antiplatelet uh, therapy. So um, for for a certain uh, period of time, and 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 the exception is if the patient has has uh, AFib, then uh, they're usually on uh, Eliquis or something else for uh, for uh, anticoagulation. And uh, and uh, those patients that they would not have that. So
1: yeah. Okay. So they need some mantle regulation, at least for a while afterwards. Mm -hmm. So if someone can't tolerate that, you know, they, then they can't, they can't get this right. 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 Now that said, if you're going to get an open surgical approach, you're going to need bypass and you're going to have full heparinization, at least for the procedure. So nobody, for example, somebody with a head bleed can't get either one of these. Right.
3: Yeah. Right. No, no, no.
1: But uh, I guess you may, if you got a new mitral valve, in an open procedure and they put in a, a porcine valve, you wouldn't need long-term anticoagulation, no, but you would. No, it's not,
3: but well, right. But for a short term, I forget the guidelines now. I think it's a uh, three months, Mike, that could be uh, wrong, but. Um,
2: so when you, even the microclip, they recommend. Um, so lifelong aspirin, like if the patient can tolerate mm-hmm. it, but they do antiplatelet therapy, as Joe said, that's for 30 days. Okay. So, so until the body kind of endothelializes over the clip, you know, it, then you have to be on you know dual antiplatelet therapy to okay. use Yeah.
1: And what if you get open surgery? What's the the shortest amount of time you'd need anticoagulation after an open surgery?
2: So it's also dependent, but especially if it's repair, then it's also short term. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not not necessary. I don't even think dual antiplatelets necessary. Um, aspirin definitely. Uh, but obviously, if it's a repair with a mechanical valve, then that's lifelong anticoagulation. Right.
1: Okay. So some pros and cons there, depending on what kind of um, you need and what your other uh, comorbidities are. All right. So let's turn to you, Mike, and tell me a little bit about the current systems that are being used now. I'm sure... This is not brand new. This has been being used for a little bit of uh, time now. You'll be able to tell us how long, but I'm sure we've gone through multiple generations. So tell us what the newest generation is and how that differs from the kind of original uh, approaches at this. And just, you know, again, it seems, I remember the first time I heard about this thinking, this can't be right. You're telling me that you're going in there and clipping the mitral valve together, right? That seems like, I mean, I think on first blush, it sounds like, oh, well, you're taking mitral regurgitation and just converting it into mitral stenosis. But there must, obviously this works or we wouldn't be doing it. So, you know, what is it about these, the methods that they're using that actually produces a good result? And, and is the newest generation able to do that in a better way? What, what have they, how have they optimized this thing over time?
2: Okay, perfect. So I'll give you a little historical uh, perspective. So uh, the first, so as Joe stated earlier, the first trial that led to FDA approval of the mitral clip was the Everest two trial, and in that trial, it was mainly the use of microclip in patients with um, organic um, uh, microregurgitation. So, primary organic, where they have a most of them have either a prolapse or a flail, and you use echocardiography to look at where that site is, and then you go and clip the anterior leaflet to the posterior leaflet at the site of the regurgitation. And the majority of the time was where you know most of these are organic uh, MRs are in the P2, uh, A2 region. So you go in, you know, uh, which will describe the procedure in a bit here, and then you clip the A2 to the P2 region. So you create a dual orifice mitral valve. And that was the Everest trial. And then, so those were patients who were not as sick, but were all primary MR. Then fast forward to the co trial, which led to FDA approval uh, for secondary MR in 2019 where well, they use the microclip again, but for a different population of patients, obviously these are patients with dilated left ventricle, the ejection fractions range from 20 to 50%. And then um, you essentially also went and clipped the anterior to posterior leaflet. And as Joe stated earlier, the, the goal is you want to rule out patients who have a small mitral valve going in into the procedure so you don't make them... You don't worsen the stenosis. Even though there are patients that develop gradients, which are you know higher than normal, like greater than five millimeters of mercury, it was still seen a lot of the, the, the results from these, these two pivotal trials that a slight elevation in the mitral gradient was still better in these super sick patients that really had no options uh, to the point that their functional capacity was better, they had less symptoms. And critically, especially in the co op trial, there was a really uh, profound survival benefit with the mitroclip in comparison to um, maximally tolerated guideline directed medical therapy. And then the the frequency of, of hospitalizations for regurgitation was really dramatically lower. So the trials have proven that the mitroclip works. But the first generation was only a one size fits all. So those of us that are old enough and were involved in the uh, the Everest two trial, it took forever. Sometimes it was three, four hours just to put a clip in. And it was because it was just one size, one length, one width. So you could not customize it to any patient. It's whatever you have. If you can grasp the leaflets, you could. If you couldn't, sometimes you are bored. So now we're in the fourth generation of the MitroClip, and that's the MitroClip G4 system. So that comes with a few changes in the specification. So now there are four clips. Uh, there is the NT, NTW, XT, and XTW. Uh, so the NT and the XT are like the older, the third generation version, and the NTW and the you know, XTW are like the fourth generation. And the differences are just the length of the clip and the width. So every so the NT is the shorter clip, it has a nine millimeter millimeter arm length. Uh, so if you have a patient specifically who has shorter leaflets, which is most of the secondary MR patients, they don't have redundant like barlows, thick and long leaflets. So if you put a longer clip, you're gonna encroach on the commissures, and you can potentially cause microstenosis, or you can even perforate a leaflet uh, at the level of the commissure. So, a shorter leaflet, like the secondary MR patient, you're gonna put an NT in. Um, so, the NT is all, all the NTs, NT and NTW are nine millimeters in leaflet lead. But then we also realize that when you put an NT in, it's a thin clip, and you may clip the anterior and posterior leaflet. But then there is such a wide Separation that you still have a lot of residual MR going around the leaflet. So that led to the development of the W, which is the NT wide. So if you have a secondary MR patient who has a broader based MR, with the older generation, you may put two or three clips in. But currently with the NTW, you may put one clip W, the wider, which is a six millimeter width compared to the MT, which is a 4-millimeter width. So you can grasp more of the leaflet, better um, acute procedural success of reducing the MR, and which you want it to be less than 2+. plus. So then we get to the XT and the XTW. That is more for patients with ballos or myxomatose longer leaflets. Uh, once again, the XT is a 12-millimeter arm you know, length, whereas the XTW is 12-millimeter arm length, but it has a wider, um, the, 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 the width is six millimeters whilst the XT is six. So in contemporary practice, the most implanted uh, of the four are the NTW and the XTW. And another really cool way to, you know, treating these patients is you can also combine these clips. So you may put an NTW here and an XTW at another section of the same valve. And you get really nice outcomes. And the last improvement of the newer G four system is, a lot of times when we finish, we used to put peer catheters in and we follow, you know, you know, wedge pressures or peer diastolics to see if we really treated the MR appropriately, which would lead to a reduction, you know, in the in the uh, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. But with the newer MitraClip G four system, uh, the clip delivery, the steerable guide catheter. Um, you can continuously monitor left atrial pressure. So if you put a clip in and before you place the, so let's say before you place a clip, the patient has a left atrial pressure of maybe 18. Then you put a clip in and it drops down to 12. You know for sure that you've reduced the regurgitant orifice error. But if you reduce it, and let's say you're not happy with it and you attempt to place another clip and all of a sudden you have a rise in your left atrial pressure, that's a reflection that you're transforming a mitral lesion to a mitral stenotic lesion. And then you just make that decision that it's not advisable for us to put that club. Uh, we used to rely on echocardiography to get all these numbers, which there's a question of accuracy with really having true left atrial pressures. There's nothing better than having a catheter which is sitting in the left atrium so you can continuously monitor your pressures. So those are the two main uh, transformations with the, uh, the the G4 system.
1: It's really a cool system. Great, thank you. A couple questions. So um, when you, you must, there must be a way, they've got this clip in there. And like you said, let's say they put one in, looks good, left atrial pressure went down. You put that second one in, oh, it went up. That That is not, this was not a good move here. So you can then just take it right out, right? It's not, there must be a way to kind of put it in, see what will happen and then say, nope, and take it out. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Mike's answer to that question.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
1: All right, we're back. And Mike's going to tell us if you can just take that thing out if you need to.
2: Perfect. Yeah. Another improvement, which I should have stated, of the G4 system is the fact that you can either grasp one leaflet at a time, Or you can grasp both leaflets simultaneously. The older system was to clip both leaflets at the same time, which was very, very difficult. So, what we the 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 workflow is: you can grasp the leaflet and then assess with echocardiography and left atrial pressures to see if you have optimally corrected the MR or you induce a mitral stenosis. So that is now releasing of the clip. So you've sort of grasped it. You do all your hemodynamic and echocardiographic assessment. And once you're really satisfied with the location of the clip, you also want to ensure that you really did grasp them firmly because they are reports of um, the clip basically uh, attaching to just one leaflet, which can risk embolization down the line. So you do all these assessments, and once you're happy, then you release it. So it's, it's called... Um, you can do it's called independent or simultaneous you know leaflet grasp and actuation and it's really cool you can see it open and close on echo and once you're really satisfied with the location and the hemodynamics and the MR correction then you release it Thank once you. you release it it's over
1: right right okay well that's great and then i think we should let's just revisit the terminology for a second because we've been using the terms a2 and p2 and you know some people may not be familiar with that so i uh, I think there are the, there's the anterior and the posterior leaflet, of the mitral valve, that's a for anterior P for posterior. And then there are, they each divided into three kind of sections. Is that right?
2: Uh, yeah, yes. perfect. Okay, Joe can take it or I can take it.
3: No, I, 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 I mean, there's really not much to, um, to, uh, to, uh, add there. I, I mean, um, uh, I mean, there's, there's basically, there's the, um, anterior and posterior, uh, um, leaflet and, um, and they're divided into three scallops. and um and the, the, and uh and so from a echo standpoint, it's pretty easy to identify the the um three different scallops on each um each uh leaflet and then um from a procedural standpoint, the uh cardiologist will kind of uh decide okay, I should clip the uh a2p2 uh, uh and so that's sort of how that how that works
1: uh, okay and that's the middle yeah. section of each of each leaflet right
3: correct right okay. right okay right
1: and so is that like you said that's the most common uh, a2p2 is the most common which makes sense it's right in the middle um it sounds like sometimes you may need to to do more than one so depending on what the dynamics of the valve bar, how bad it is uh, you might clip a2 to p2 and a1 to a2 or something or to p2 or something like that right i, I imagine you're never going to clip but you tell me maybe i'm wrong but i'm just guessing you're not going to clip like a1 to p3
2: yes you never clip across so the good thing is as joe has stated it's more like um it's like you know it's 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 like a curved you know um it's like a saddle shape um and then so the a1 you know, we call it coaptation, like where the anterior meets the posterior. So A1 meets P1, A2 meets P2, A3 meets P3. And the clip is implanted perpendicular to the corresponding anterior and posterior segment. So you can, it's not even possible to go across and staple A. If you staple A, let's say A1 to P3, you basically... Stapling the valve shot. Yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. you can do it, but it would not.
1: Never gonna, never gonna want to do it. Okay, <laughs> never
2: gonna do it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Good. All right. Well, let's talk about the actual procedure itself. So, Joe, do you want to take us through what is the procedure for putting this thing in? How do they do it?
3: Yeah, sure. So, um, so step by step, it's uh, typically done in a um, in a cath lab or uh, hybrid uh, OR because it needs um, fluoro um, and uh, TE for. For, for guidance and it's done with um, general anesthesia because um, A, the TE probe has to stay there for, for some time, and B, it's uh, helpful if the patient is extremely still for them to place these, um, these uh, clips in a very, very specific spot. So, um, so um, patient comes back, um, they go to sleep, a TE probe is placed, and then, uh, from there, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, cardiologist needs, uh, to do something called a, um, transeptal approach. So it's a common approach. It's used in, um, um, uh, structural heart. It's uh, used in, um, in, um, in, um, uh, in, uh, in, um, ablations for, uh, most forms of AFib. Um, so, uh, what that means is the, um, EP cardiologists will access the, uh, femoral vein, will actually stay on the venous side at, at the beginning of the procedure. They'll go uh, up the venous side into the right atrium to the inter, uh, atrial septum area. Uh, and, and, and then they have to cross that septum to get to the, to the left, um, atrium to, to, to access the, uh, the, uh, mitral valve. So, um, it's a common procedure up until that point for for multiple um indications that i had that i that I had uh mentioned but it's it's critical that they they cross the septum at just the right point because if they um if they cross too high too low too anterior too posterior it's difficult for them to um to uh maneuver the 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 catheter to place the uh, mitre clip in the
1: right spot. Um, So So, so Joe, they're creating an ASD, right? I mean, that's what they're doing. They're creating an atrial septal defect.
3: Correct, Um, (laughs) which they often will uh, spontaneously close with uh, time, Um, but uh, sometimes they don't, and sometimes they do have to uh, intervene on on them, but they usually don't. When the procedure's done, the uh, ASD just stays there. As long as it doesn't cause problems, they just uh, leave it. So, so basically um oh um and it's important uh, to say that that, that um any time the uh, the uh, cardiologist crosses from the from the right to the to the uh, left side um uh patients uh, sh- sh- uh sh- should be um um too um uh, because um, otherwise you could have a thrombus form that could uh, go to the the brain the the coronaries uh uh, uh someplace bad basically so um so then uh, after the uh, after the uh, cardiologist has had uh, has uh has uh has uh made it uh, t- um uh, t- uh to the um uh, uh, uh um uh, LA, um, it, he or she, uh, takes a special kind of, uh, catheter and, uh, with the assistance of, um, TE guidance and, um, and, uh, and, uh, fluoroscopy, uh, guidance, um, uh, uh, can actually, uh, guide the catheter, um, uh, uh, uh to the, uh, uh, location of the uh, of the uh, of the uh, mitral valve and and apply these uh, clips.
1: Okay, so that's how they do it, and the mm-hmm. it sounds like a really key component of this is that transseptal approach because until then it's really quite standard and you don't need anticoagulation and you know it's um, you're just getting into the right heart, but when you cross over into the left heart, it kind of takes a step up in complexity. Uh, you, mm-hmm. As you said, you have to find exactly the right Spot, if you don't go over in the right area, you're going to have difficulty maneuvering. And then, of course, you have to know there's potential complications associated with that. All right. But you get over there. You then, of course, are on the left side, which is where the mitral valve is and you access mm-hmm. the part of it. And give me a, an idea of, of like, if, if all goes well, how long does this take? Like, what's a, what's a reasonable average, assuming, you know, there's no major complications, just kind of average procedure if it goes well?
3: I mean, it's, uh, that's a tough question. I think it, it depends on the, um, the uh, experience of the um, the uh, operator um, the uh, number of uh, clips needed the uh, the uh, complexity of the um, of the uh, of the uh, disease itself of the uh, mitral valve but if things go well at my center uh, after they cross the septum which probably takes about 20 to uh, 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 from from prepping and everything probably uh, 20 to 30 minutes. To place a clip is probably another 15 to 30 minutes once the septum's crossed In at uh, at uh, my center. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, Mike, is it probably uh, similar?
1: Well, should we assume that, you know, since a C-section in private practice takes about a half an hour and in <laughs> academics takes about six hours, that uh, it's the yeah. same or no?
2: No, I think it's uh, the, the, the procedure. Joe is correct. The procedure has transformed. So When, so just just to share some anecdotes. uh, So during the Everest and co op trials, right? So most transeptal procedures were being done in the EP world, where those, you know, the EP physicians would do transeptal. And even for the cardiac anesthesiologist, we had to kind of learn how to guide them with the best site for transeptal puncture. So just the transeptal puncture alone was taking a little bit of time. But in this day and age, after, you know, the co op trial and Everest trials, it takes maybe an hour, an hour and a half. So you're basically taking a critically ill patient. Uh, and then the monitoring, the scale of the monitoring is reduced. So they get, you know, with ultrasound guidance, they get into the femoral vein in a few, you know, like a minute, whatever it is. They get into the right atrium. We guide them transeptally, heparinize to an ACT of like 250s. And then they all, once you just do that, they are ready to grasp the leaflets. And it used to be difficult, you know, as Joe shared before, because you had to grasp both leaflets at the same time. So if one leaflet is going this way, the other is going the other way, it was just hard to basically grasp them three-dimensionally and clip them. Um, And we were using mostly two-dimensional echoes. So things are better now because you can grasp independently, you know, the leaflets independently. Um, and then you have fluoroscopy and we have three-dimensional echo and four-dimensional echo, and, you know, based on where you're working at. So you can really see things with precision and they would go and target that location, grasp the leaflets in no time. Sometimes you grasp one and then you pull it a little bit to grasp the other. You didn't have that option before. So so timing of the procedure is really, really not too bad. Like an hour and a half tops, even in great. academics. Great, yeah, great.
3: No, and and uh, yeah. No and uh things have changed too because um the uh the uh G4 system came out in 2019 or so and um I'm starting uh to see uh patients that had a a um placed prior to the uh G4 system where they might have had some trouble and a single clip got placed on but their uh, MR was still not really that good and they're still having uh symptoms and then Uh, they'll actually uh, come back for a second clip that they'll try with, with the um, improved uh, system. So things have really, the technology just keeps getting better and better. Um, I I didn't have to struggle through the, through the um, Everest trial, that (laughs) period. I think I was, I was still in high school when uh, Mike was doing (laughs) that.
1: (laughs) All right. Now the patient is uh, under what kind of anesthesia uh, during this? it's a, uh, it's
3: a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a uh, general, um, um, anesthesia. So, um, it's, 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 it's typically, uh, goals uh, for that. I usually place in, uh, in, um, arterial line, uh, uh, prior, uh, to going to sleep just because these patients do tend to be sicker. Um, and there's really no huge downside to doing that. And then just a, just a, a a a slow induction um, the placement of an endotracheal tube, um, TE probe, and then when the case is over, um, it's it's actually critical to ensure with TE that there's not a, a pericardial effusion. Uh, that's a that's a known uh, uh, complication that can occur uh, most commonly when they're doing the uh, transeptal uh, puncture, but it could occur at some uh, some uh, other point too. And then after that, at my center, um, they'll either go to step down or to ICU, which, but that may mean uh, just from a logistic standpoint that they make a pit stop in, in the PACU. So it's important uh, taking care of these patients in, in the recovery room. If they get a hypotensive or something, you start to think about things that could be going on. Um, and I have a pretty low, uh, a threshold uh t- um to call for a, a bedside um tte uh, t- to ensure that the, that a pericardial effusion uh, d- uh, didn't develop uh, um uh uh, d- uh developed cuz i've seen it where we check in the, in the in the in the room with te there's no effusion things look good you get them to pack you blood pressure's kind of soft they're they're often uh, beta block so Everything looks good. The heart rate's kind of low. You're like, okay, well, that's good. The patient's not tacky, but they're beta-blocked, but the blood pressure's off. You call echo, you get the T E, uh, the, the TTE, and there's a big effusion that needs drain. So something to think about um, both intra-op and in the recovery room.
1: Great. All right. Now, is the reason these patients need general anesthesia because of the TEE? I mean, is that really because it seems like so, from a – yeah.
3: That's that's the big reason, um, and it's also like it's tricky to place these clips. Um, it's getting uh, easier, uh, obviously, with the improved um, Grasper and the in the in the uh, G four system that Mike uh, had uh, discussed. But it's a lot easier and safer, I think, if the patient's totally still to do this. Um, okay. Uh, Now, if they didn't need TEE, could you do it with a conscious uh, sedation or uh, maybe, but we're not there yet.
1: (laughs) Okay. And maybe to come. All right. So, Mike, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about what kind of acute complications we can see hemodynamically with these placements?
2: Okay. So I think Joe started it off uh, pretty well. So acutely. So whenever you're making the transeptal puncture, um, you know, there are a few things that can happen. Uh, if the procedural is a a little anterior, they can actually potentially puncture into the aorta. So that can be an acute aortic dissection, damage of the aortic valve, and obviously that's a critical um, complication that needs cardiac surgery, you know, emergently. Uh, You can also go through and through when you do a transeptal puncture and damage the left atrial wall, the posterior wall, that would lead to uh, if it's not uh, detected right away, that can lead to a slow tamponade, which you know Joe um, alluded to you know earlier. But if everything goes smoothly, though, there are two complications like associated with an optimal clipping that you know all anesthesiologists have to be aware of, and you have to plan appropriately. Uh, the first is uh, uh, microstenosis. Uh, which we, we shared that they, you you do an initial screening to make sure the mitral valve area is greater than four uh, centimeters squared for a patient to be included in the mitral clip. But one of the problems we run into is you may have a patient that has an optimal mitral valve area, but you put a first clip in and the MR correction is, is not appropriate. So you've gone from severe to moderate to severe, and then you put a second clip in and maybe a third. And then all of a sudden, you have mitral stenosis. So you've converted a regurgitant lesion to a stenotic lesion. So it's critical that when they put in this, you know, the clip in, before they do the final release, you measure left atrial pressure, you do your gradients, and you also can trace. It becomes a double orifice. So you can trace the two areas of the, you know, the mitral valve and sum it together to see what the effective orifice area is. So that's one thing. But another complication that uh, we actually have done a lot of work in this space at Ohio State, um, and also Dr. Dahlia, he's uh, over in Adam Dahlia at um, MGH. He was also one of my you know colleagues a few years back. And we, we, we made an observation that in patients who had, uh, it was a secondary MR patient, we had a really low ejection fraction. And as soon as a clip was placed and the MR correction was great, we were all happy. And a few minutes later, the patient was profoundly hypotensive. And that's the concept of afterload mismatch. And the, the whole physiology is, when you have mitral regurgitation, the ventricle is unloaded. Um, it's, it's loaded from a volume standpoint. So you have a high LV volumes, but pressure-wise, the ventricle is unloaded. As soon as you implant the microclip and you really collect the correct, you know, the MR, you take away that pressure relief system into the left atrial circulation. So all of a sudden, a ventricle that really doesn't spend too much time in isovolumic contraction now has to generate all these pressures and squeeze into the, you know, the resistance or the impedance of the aorta. So that can really cause an acute heart failure. So there are a few risk factors for, you know, this afterload mismatch. Um, one is high-risk patients. Uh, there was a recent publication where it was demonstrated that if your Euro score is greater than 12, there is a super high risk of developing afterload mismatch, which is essentially an acute heart failure after microclip implantation. Uh, so low ejection fraction, people with EFs of 20% uh, also at risk for, you know, afterload mismatch. And the, the reason we have to be aware is most of these Everest and co-op trials did not include these super high-risk patients. They were high-risk on paper, but the ejection fractions were in a relatively moderate to severe range. Now that the mitral is approved, we are pushing the limits for compassionate, you know, treatment in patients with low ejection fraction. So the, the likelihood of afterload mismatch development is really, really high. Um, echocardiography helps you, you know, identify afterload mismatch. So when when you have hypotension after release, typically it's these two uh, complications, stenosis or afterload mismatch. With stenosis, there is profound stasis in the left atrium and you end up seeing what we call spontaneous echo contrast, which is like quote unquote smoke smoke in the left atrium, but the left ventricle stays empty and is more clear um, regarding the contrast. Whereas with afterload mismatch, it's a left ventricular disease, so there is no limited forward flow from the left ventricle. So you, set, you end up with smoke in the left ventricle and in the left atrium. So that is that is one of the main complications of, you know, uh, microclip therapy. So if you optimally correct the MR, that's what you're mostly going to see.
1: Okay, great. So that's, you know, I think it sounds to me like there's two categories of complications. There's, there's things that go wrong with the procedure, like a puncture of the atrial wall which is going to lead to a uh, slow development of of uh, an effusion and maybe tamponade that's obviously when something was done that shouldn't have been but what you're and then there's the second category which you just talked about which is even if everything goes as it should you can still have either too much correction leading to stenosis or you can have this now left ventricle which used to have this pop off valve of pressure going backwards easy you know easy on the ventricle now it's got a really only push forward and sometimes that ventricle can't do it and will fail acutely. And so those are things to look out for. Great. And you mentioned kind of what to look out for on the echo you, in terms of the contrast and you, and, um, you know, the patients who are high risk for this being those patients with kind of those lower EFs going in anything else you want to add about complications, either one of you, um, uh, because obviously that's something people are going to want to look out for, but, um, I don't know if you feel like you covered it all, or if there's anything else you want to add,
3: I, I would say a uh, big one. So, um, tamponade is probably like that's the biggest one that you, you, you just can't miss that like if they're um hypotensive you know you have to make sure that tamponade is not going on um it's uh, fixable and something yeah you know, it's just uh shouldn't be missed um my other things um it's a big sheath it's a 24 french sheath that goes into the uh, femoral vein so um so it's so, uh, so, uh, so, uh, problems at the, um, at the, um, uh, puncture site can uh, pop up with bleeding hematoma, um, and, and, uh, those kinds of things too. So that's something to, to, to keep in mind too. If I get called to the PACU and they're a uh, hypotensive and even if it's for some other procedure that, that, uh, required uh femoral uh, access, I'll be like, okay, like, let's look at the groins, make sure, um there's not a problem there. Um, a few other things, not as quite critical or acute. Um, the uh, mitroclip has been known to cause a uh, new onset, uh, AFib, uh, something to think about. Um, endocarditis reports are out there that would not be in the acute setting. Um, very rare, um, for that to occur. Uh, but it's, it's, it's there. um, a few other things you, we talked about a, a little bit. These clips can uh, embolize, um, uh, also rare, um, especially with the improvement of the clips and the uh, more more experience. Um, the the uh, the um, the uh, the uh, leaflets can actually tear or perforate from from the clips, which 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 could actually make the uh, MR at worse. Um, Mitral stenosis. I think we talked about that enough. Um, the, the, the one notable thing for for uh, mitral stenosis, though, say somebody has a grading of five, which is borderline higher on 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 the end, um, and uh, those patients are far are are uh, followed at three months, six months, um, uh, twelve months. That, that gradient stays at five. So it's not where some MS where you, your concerned. oh, is it going to progress? It, it, it usually doesn't. So if you have five, when you're done with the case, you're going to keep five. So.
1: Right. Um, is it fair to say you need to do these in a center that has a cardiac surgeon, uh, present? Because as you said, if something acutely you get an aortic dissection or something, you can't be, you know, transporting the patient.
3: Yeah. At uh, my center, um, the cardiac surgeon is actually scrubbed in and actually takes part of the clipping. Um, that's not everywhere. Um, but, uh, you definitely need backup readily available, not, Oh, someone's at home or, um, but yeah, basically you, you need a perfusionist and a cardiac surgeon who's ready to go, uh, pretty quickly. Should something go awry. Gotcha.
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, Joe is Joe is Joe is absolutely right, and it's it's one of the things that even if and, and, and on the contrary too, even if you have a cardiac surgeon who is you uh, know which especially in Europe they you know they are they have skills with interventional procedures, right? you also should have a proceduralist with you. So there was a there was there are a few publications where the transeptal puncture site actually may dissect out a little bit. So all of a sudden, you have a, a critically wide open ASD with, with a shunt. And then the interventionalist went put a septal occluder in um, to obviously avoid a right-to-left shunt. So it's, it's done where you need both teams. And another critical person is the echocardiographer and the cardiac anesthesiologist. And for centers that have, you know, let's say someone like Joe or myself, who's a cardiac anesthesiologist, we bring the physiology and we also bring the echocardiography, in our know, knowledge. But if it's a place where the cardiologist is doing the echo and the anesthesiologist is really doing the the anesthetic, there should be close communication because when a complication such as when they are releasing the clip and they are communicating with the interventionalist, you you want to be listening. You want to be part of that communication. If there's a high risk for afterload mismatch or high risk for mitral stenosis, you have to have all your from therapeutics readily available cuz you don't want to be out of the loop and then the clip is placed and now you have afterload mismatch your blood pressure is 60 and you're calling ph- pharmacy to get an anionodilate- dilated therapy so we all have to really be part of the you know the discussion especially during the critical phases of transeptal puncture heparinization clip delivery and uh clipping yeah
1: great and as you said if you do develop Heart failure because of the um, afterload mismatch, probably uh, an inodilator, so something like tobutamine, milrinone, something that's going to help your heart push and reduce the, the afterload it has to push against is probably helpful. If you develop um, mitral stenosis, what is your kind of go-to um, treatment there in the <laughs> acute setting?
3: Well, I, I hope if that does occur, uh, it's picked up before it's the the uh, clip is release because, um, because, uh, Mike had said, um, uh, earlier, uh, it's, uh, as soon as, uh, that clip is, uh, is, uh, deployed, it is, it is stuck there. It's, it's not coming off unless basically the valve comes out. Um, so if you really end up with, uh true, uh, mitral stenosis, um, and it's severe enough. I, I I don't know if you have a a a a, a, a better answer, Mike. But I, you're you're in a tough spot because I don't think you could do a you could really intervene on that with a balloon or anything. Although, if you ask enough cardiologists, I'm sure you get someone to try. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah. Uh,
2: so. I mean, Joe is correct. Um, so <laughs> you do your due diligence before you release the clip. So once you clip them, uh, they use, especially with the newer G4 system, they measure left atrial pressure to see MR is corrected. They use echo. We do gradients. We do planimetry. You look at the color flow Doppler. You look at your pulmonary veins. So you do enough due diligence that even if there is a gradient of maybe 5 to 10, it's it may be a gradient that, quote, unquote, is stenotic. But there's still adequate forward flow to carry the patient, you know, uh, for the rest of their lives. So a gradient of five, in, you know, that's one of the reasons that the mitral clip is not, you know, approved for like a younger patient who has, you know, uh, prolapse or flail, and surgery still the primary therapy because a gradient of five is not too bad when you're not, you know, working out. But when you become tachycardic and the left atrial pressure increases that will lead to heart failure, you know, symptoms uh, from exertion. So uh, in the mitral population, most of these patients, especially those with profound heart failure, it's you, you're trying to basically reduce that volume, you know, sort of decrease the progression of the LV dysfunction from the volume overload, and you trade off maybe a slight gradient. But uh, from the Everest trial – no, sorry, from the co-op trial and a few other reports – even patients with gradients still had reduction in uh, heart failure hospitalizations, and they also had improved survival in comparison with those that were just on medical therapy. So, um, unless you really, really get too crazy, the likelihood of critical mitral stenosis is low because all of all the, the the multidisciplinary team, everybody checks each other to make sure we're doing the best thing.
1: Great. Now this is all still pretty new, so there may not be anything newer on the horizon, but let me just ask, when we think about what's coming down the pike is there anything exciting, you know, uh that that is going to be an improvement on this or anything uh that your guys are aware of?
3: Uh, I yeah. saw something in Europe, but yeah. You go, Mike. Yeah. Oh okay. yeah.
2: So obviously the micro clip is going to be advanced again. So that's, you know, that's like the for system. But uh, there's the Pascal system, which is an Edwards um, version. It's similar to the clip, but it's from its delivery. It's actually approved for, you know, commercial use in Europe. It's under investigation. Uh, if it wasn't for COVID, probably those trials would have been completed. And from what I've read, I haven't had the experience of seeing it implanted. It actually puts places less tension on the leaflets, and may, may be a little better hemodynamically than the mitral clip. So it's yet to be, you know, um, determined, but the, the Pascal is the, it's also a clip, uh similar in functionality, but obviously for proprietary reasons, there are slight design, um, differences. Gotcha. Uh, and,
3: and it's sort of a different, uh, podcast topic, but, um, uh, I, I know that there are companies out there trying to come up with a basically a TAVR valve for the for the mitral uh, position. I mean, they they exist. It's it's been done, um, but the success rate is so so, and the uh, complication rate is fairly high. Um, so there is a select set of patients that may be candidates for a actually a, a valve like for basically a, a TAVR in the mitral. Op- position so uh, r- right now that has a lot of kind of trouble um i don't know if in the future if we're going to keep you know in the 10 years are we going to be doing clips or are we going to be doing valves i uh, who who knows but it's a still a growing field and there's still you know uh, where there's still a good number of patients that are uh, better suited to um open surgery than than the clip so uh that may change too i don't know it's uh and if you think about it, um, the Alfieri stitch came out in the in 1991 or so, and then the the uh, clip started in uh, 2003 or so. So things, I mean, that's really not that long ago, and things have really changed. So I think they're going to just change more and more. It's a pretty exciting. I I love my job. It's pretty uh, exciting field. I'm always seems like things are getting better. So
1: yeah well, it'll be exciting to see and we'll have you guys back on to talk more about them when the new things okay. come out um great well let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations uh Joe maybe we'll start with you do you have a, something you'd recommend the audience check out
3: sure so i uh, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to um to uh, anyone who 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 works in uh, in uh, critical care and does uh palliative care um, i I just uh I just got done with this book. It's it's going to sound a little morbid, but it's worth the read. It's called <laughs> It's called a uh, a uh, beginner's guide to the end: practical advice for for living life and uh, facing uh, death. It's by a doctor uh BJ Miller. He's a uh palliative care uh, physician and um it it just sort of puts um it's, it's real. it's not meant for physicians, but it's meant for uh, anybody. And it just kind of puts uh, dealing with uh, life and dealing with death that comes with um, life into the big picture perspective. And uh, I thought it was a very, I'm um, a helpful book. I don't do a whole lot of critical care, but they're like uh, per se in the ICU setting. But I think there are certainly times in my day when, um, I'm taking care of a patient where they may be going under some kind of surgery or, 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 or a procedure. And I wonder, Hey, is this really appropriate or that sort of thing? And, um, and it sort of, kind of helps me to call the surgeon or the proceduralist and say, Hey, are we doing the right thing? Should we consider uh, palliative care? So, um, you know, sh- um, shout out to uh, Dr. Miller's book, and to really uh, anyone who um does um, icu and uh and and involved in that um palliative care medicine
1: well thanks joe I, I, actually bj miller was uh one of the two folks who did most of our palliative care curriculum at ucsf when i was a medical student there oh, and cool. he was an incredible guy with an incredible life story and and was just taught incredibly well and, and spoke powerfully about palliative care. Um, and so I, I couldn't agree more. I haven't read the book, but I'm glad you mentioned it. And and I'm sure knowing him that it's really well done. So thanks for recommending that. Um, Mike, how about you?
2: All right. Um, I will recommend this book by Ray Dalio. This is actually different. Over the years, my fellows encouraged me to kind of read a little bit more outside of medicine. So I started doing uh, more in the, you know, just on the business, just picking up great books. But Principles by Ray Dalio, he's a hedge, I think he's a manager of the largest hedge fund, uh, you know, in the world, and he just goes into, he shares his approach to life management, certain criteria that he uses to make uh, decisions, and I found it to be quite fascinating, it's a really, really, it's easy to read, and it can improve your skills as a leader, you know, father, just, just name it, it's, so I think for, you know, for your listeners, I think that would be a great book to read.
1: That's awesome. Thanks, Mike. And this is a big improvement. I think your first random recommendation was like, uh, that, uh to people to read Miller's anesthesiology or something like that. So <laughs> this, is a, this is a step up. All right. Yes. Excellent. Um, well, I, we have a, a listener recommendation. Um, this was tweeted at, uh, at us from John Bailey and he recommends a Twitter account, which is at Kurzgesagt. And I'll, I'll spell that. It's at K U R Z underscore G E. S like sam a like apple g t like tom and uh, it's really interesting actually this twitter account they make science videos on really interesting stuff like one recently was about the fact that actually it's not that wild to think about the moon crashing into the earth and and what would this what would the kind of ge- geometry of that look like and how would it happen and uh what would happen if it did and then they also have things on optical illusions and questions kind of exploring whether we're alone in the universe and and, and how to think about that and what the mathematical chances are and things like that. So really interesting. Um, I, I will be spending a little more time on that, and I recommend people check it out, too. So thanks to John for shouting that out. And then my recommendation, uh, and, you know, I, I can't remember if I already said this on a prior episode. So if I did, I apologize for the redundancy. But there's a show on HBO Plus called Dope Sick. And it is incredible. It is about the opioid epidemic and uh, um, the uh, release of OxyContin and Purdue Pharma and the whole kind of initial thing that led to all the addiction and the lawsuits. And it takes you through it. It's incredibly well acted. Um, Amazing actors, amazing actresses. It's just really, really well done. The story is incredibly well told. It's not not a happy show. It's uh, quite sobering. But I think since it's real and it tells a true story about kind of that really tells you a lot about what's happening in our society, it's, it's worth checking out, um, not just because it's well done, but because it's quite um, still applicable. Um, all right. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming back on the show. This was great. I really appreciate it. And we'll look forward to next time. Thanks so much, Jed. Uh,
2: thank you so much, Jed. Thanks for having us.
1: All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at jwolpaw on Twitter. And we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to Patreon.com/acrac. That's patreo ncom a-c-c-r-a-c where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to PayPal.me/acrac. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks as always to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Doctor Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager, and doctors Kimia Kashkuli and April Lou are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by doctor Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently.